Go. Hello, everyone that listens to our podcast. <laughs> Welcome to Empathic Futures Lab, the show about designing human-focused futures for the environments that we live in. Uh, so, once again, I'm Christian, and... Oh, I'm Chris. Yes. And... Uh, I'm going to give the introduction of the episode now. Okay, so today we're going to start the first in our series that'll be ongoing and mixed with other stuff in between. But the first in our series in which we're covering this uh, different chapters of the book, The Inevitable, uh, Understanding the 12 Technological Forces That Will Shape Our Future. Uh, it's written by Kevin Kelly, who was the founder, of, co-founder of Wired and executive editor or whatever for the first seven years um, as told by the cover of the book that's what I'm told uh, and we have him here with us to talk about no I'm just kidding <laughs> that would be pretty cool if he was here with us but you know we have another person named Kevin not really either that either we'll have a guest on our next show I think uh, or two, two shows, shows two shows in two shows well we'll have one of our first guest and he's got some interesting actually it might be three shows Two or, two or three shows. We're not good with dates. No, stuff. we're not good with dates. Might be two. Probably two. Could be three. Whatever. For, for you avid listeners, you can look out for that. Yep. Um, should be good. But, sorry. Yeah, no, I was just saying it should be a good one. Um, I don't know. Other news, Christian has a new job. Started. Oh, yeah, I should say that. Uh, I'm working as a visiting lecturer at uh, University of Illinois. Uh, School of Architecture, and it's really exciting, and I got a great bunch of 15 juniors in my uh, studio, and they're going to produce some awesome projects, I can tell. All right. Because um, they're creative and exciting individuals. Nice. Uh, we'll have to <laughs> check back in on the progress as, uh, as things go through, go on the yeah, semester. Yeah, I'll, des- I'll describe their, their efforts in vivid detail on a, on a single episode. Probably not, but... <laughs> okay. No, but we'll check in on... See yeah. how things are going. Probably so, have an episode or two from Champagne. That'll be cool. Yeah. Um, yeah, we'll do a live... Not live, but we'll do a in-place... An at-location episode. Yeah, that'd be uh, great. So the first... Let's get into this, I guess. Yeah, let's get into uh, it. Before we take any more rabbit trails. The, the book is pretty cool. It talks about 12 things that are going to be really important in the future. Uh, and I think that goes chapter by chapter yep. uh, and talks about a different uh, technological force, I guess, that is um, is going to be pertinent in the future. And the first one is the first chapter that we're covering. It's called Becoming. Um, and do we want to give like a brief overview of what exactly that means? Um, to the extent that you can, I think it's pretty vague it was left pretty open-ended as to what becoming actually is or at least from my what i how i read it but yeah go for it give a short Maybe executive summary I had a bit of a different um reading on it we'll see okay uh, good it sort of kind of gets into actually summarizing it pretty well near the end of the chapter yeah i guess it's so it's about um and it talks about it in the beginning obviously like defining it but near the end it kind of pulls it all together i guess as a chapter should do um, and then talks about this idea that things are in constant maintenance, need constant maintenance and um, updates and, you know, digital things, for instance, but physical 
places as well uh, need this sort of care. Um, and the idea of becoming, the way I understood he described it, is this constant evolution. That it's no, it's not necessarily a new version each time, but it's it's a new thing each time. It's a completely each time it, it's each time it's changed is something completely new, which requires the user, a constituent, um, to interact with it in a different way. Um, was something that I, I think he sort of hinted at here, which. Uh, we can get into more detail, but it's just this idea, really just this idea of uh, continual evolution. Yeah, I'm not sure that I read that as, as uh, every time it's something completely new. I think I, I read it as... There's one point where he makes that point, but gotcha. I'll have to well, I, yeah. exactly it is. I mean, I remember it as like... Uh, uh, everyone's a continual newbie, right? I remember that quote and... Um, Everyone's constantly adapting, but I think I think part of the idea was that you. It's I don't know if it was ever something completely new as much as it's constantly changing and it does constantly require adapting. But it's I, I don't know. I guess if I'm reading it as updates, I don't think updates necessarily mean completely new every time. But as much as like gradual changes, I think there was some point where it's talking about. Um, Trying to see if I can find that note, but it seemed like there was some point where you talked about gradual changes, and eventually you uh, realize that it is something completely new. But it's because you can't see these gradual changes over time. I think that might be what I'm getting at. Okay. I don't know exactly. Maybe page. I'm not sure. It doesn't matter. Nobody knows what pages we're looking. <laughs> yeah. Um. So yeah, taking us, I guess, from the top. Um, sort of early in this chapter, uh, he introduces this idea of entropy and continual maintenance, I guess, and things becoming old uh, over and over and constantly requiring this maintenance uh, and needing to keep the system afloat. And I thought this was a pretty easy metaphor uh, to the maintenance of buildings. And, you know, how do we continually apply updates to environments so that it's not in a, a state of stasis, but instead one of continual evolution? Um, and whether or not that needs to be something that occurs in and of itself, it's sort of autonomous, right? Or something that's instigated by people around it. I don't know. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah. So, so your your question. Well, I guess what are you getting at? What are you trying to to question with that? Well, if it's if it if this if the building is constantly changing and updating itself. Over time, if that's a, if that's a matter of aesthetic, mm-hmm. or if it's a matter of responding to people. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, there's all. If, if, it's, if it's just for the sake of that, it's novel in and of itself. Mm-hmm. Well, I guess, okay. Let me ask you this question: Is that what you think is going to be out of this chapter the most relevant in terms of how we apply that to our our careers or our processes as designers or even our everyday lives as people who experience spaces? Is it just the continual update of buildings. Um, I guess, I guess you know, continually to update buildings. I guess we should sort of. I guess when I say that, I'm probably talking more about um, like abstract interactive environments. I guess things that aren't necessarily programmatized. 
maybe maybe things that are geared more towards the artistic. What do you mean in terms of like color palettes and decorations and and, and things of that na- furniture arrangements? Is that, or I guess where are we going with uh, the artistic? I suppose. Um, I, I I guess I'm not thinking. Techni- yeah. Well, no, it's it's similar to. So we had this competition that we submitted to, right? Mm-hmm. And you know, in my mind, it's similar to something like that, where you can have a mundane environment, but there's something in it that allows it to manipulate continually over and over again. And in that, I think we we're really looking at how it responds to people. Uh-huh. But there's some autonomy. I think there's also some autonomy to that system in the way that it can it can sort of change itself for novelties and aesthetics sake so that it's not necessarily a response to people but it's proactive towards people's perception um okay okay so so sort of a a real time real time changes to how people act in their environment real time real-time reactions to how or are maybe well much in the same way that a person makes a decision about something that they're going to do right Mm -hmm. and maybe these sort of systems won't necessarily just respond to what people are doing and what people are and their preferences etc but maybe they also have their own personality or characteristics in and of themselves that allows them to be expressful in the same way that people express themselves artistically or in a similar way, that they're not just being responsive, but they're being proactive as well, in in the production of environment. Hmm. I mean, if it's an if it's an autonomous, artificially intelligent system, um, I guess I question what it is, what that system is responding to in terms of constantly this constant state of entropy or change. Um, if it's only responding to people or if it's responding to other stimuli that's maybe like pre-programmed that is is part of its nature I guess and that was that's I guess that's sort of a tangent but that's something that I kind of wanted to get in here a little bit deeper um, probably maybe a little bit more practically uh, and some this later on in here um, you know it it talks a bit I think about how people would deal with these sorts of environments um, and this is environments that are constantly changing um, you know we we deal with them on our phones right but like it says it's it, it's at a pace in which we don't even notice the the subtlety of the change right and so we look at the Facebook app of today compared to the one of 10 years ago and it's a subtle change over time where it's become something that's completely new and its function is completely different from what it was 10 years ago as well. Um, so is so that's so is it apparent is it okay do have people dealt with that sort of change in a good way and will that same sort of change if that same sort of change happened at a faster rate in architecture than it does now um, similar to similarly to how you know your apps change and update over time uh, will that be received equally 
uh, will it be received in a way that people aren't, you know, in a state of like future shock or whatever? Uh huh. Um, I guess is a question that I would bring up. Uh, I mean, it's hard to respond to that, really. I, I really, I guess I'm not really sure how to get into that, just because. I mean, to a certain extent, environments change all the time. You know, cities change all the time. There's new stores on a street. The new building goes up. Uh, you look at photographs of Chicago from the 90s versus now, and it's completely different, even though it sort of really is the same city with a lot of the same landmarks. And it's just, right. you know, a building goes up this year, a storefront changes this year, you know. Um so to a certain extent that always is always changing i don't know if right. that's anything really new maybe i don't know are you asking if the rate of change uh, yeah if, like... if, the, if the rate of change increases as we've seen the rate of change increase with digital devices and things um but i wonder I... if that I, I it's probably more of a rhetorical question than anything i wonder if that has any effect on us i guess I mean, I guess uh, to a certain extent, once the rate of change hits a number, we're going to hit a point, we're going to notice the change and it's not going to be. Yeah. Okay. So that's where your future shock thing gets in, huh? Yeah. That's where you're getting at. I don't know. Maybe. I think, I think if, if it's going to be a proactive change, it's, it's going to happen in a way that relatively frictionless, right? Isn't that, that's kind of the point. Maybe that's where the designer comes in to say, Hey, we're, you know, it's an interaction design process similar to how you have interaction designers with these digital technologies so maybe that's that's the job of the designer to say hey uh we're gonna we're gonna change this thing in a way that is relatively frictionless and where there is friction it's at a very intentional spot to let people know this is going on or let people know that something is happening and uh i mean that's just an element of good design right right that's um yeah that's something i wanted to bring up is as let's let's go into this and say that um, in the same way in which digital environments are changing it's it's possible that our physical environment could achieve the same sort of rate of change okay um, and so do you introduce this idea of like an iteration meter uh, which provides a percentage of which describes a percentage of newness or percentage difference from your previous experience at that particular place um, and, you know, does it give you, like, a version number, and should that always be publicized? And are, are, like, those new things, the new elements of the space, should those be highlighted and noted for your exploration or interest or whatever else, I guess? Um, do we need help knowing where the newness is coming from? Uh, do we need... I guess my, my question would be, why why do we care if things are so new? Or why do we really need to know if things are so new, right? You're looking at, you're, you compare this back to Facebook or uh, Twitter or Instagram or any of these places that have, have adjusted their UI, and, and maybe there's a little bit of a discomfort, a little bit of friction in getting to know it for the first 10 minutes. But after that, does it, you know, you kind of... S- slide into it really quickly or you know getting get back to the routine really quickly i i guess where would things change right you you're changing the height of ceilings you're changing the the light percentage are you changing where chairs are located throughout the room how much of that is something that you know do we it depends like what you're are you, is what you're saying is like 
the relative impact of what's changing. Like, it matters. It matters based on the relative impact of what's changing. So, if something, if a change is perceived to be more meaningful than a small change, right? Uh, is that something? Is that something that is important to know, or is something that you would know anyway? I guess I'm saying that there's going to be so many changes to a. It, it, I, I guess it comes back to this whole it, it, things change incrementally, and then all of a sudden it's completely different, right? Um, but. From one hand, right, you're looking at this change meter. At what point are you saying that, A, you're measuring these changes from, are you measuring it from January 20, or January 1st till now? Are you measuring the change from January 5th till now? Um, right? The rate of that, the, the total amount changed would be very different, right? Because if you're right. incrementally I mean, changing. In something like this, I think it would depend on you. When was the last time you were there? And so you can understand the the amount of difference there is in the environment. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, it's, yeah, like, I, it's like those 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 pictures you used to see in the books, where it's like, can you spot the difference in these paintings? Right. Uh, I mean, they they largely look the same, probably, and then and then and then they're different. I don't, I don't know. I guess my question is why do we care if it's different why do we need this change meter why why do we need to highlight what's different or what what do you gain in knowing what's different from now versus last time you were in the room whether that's 30 minutes ago or three weeks ago why does it matter that's what i would ask you if you're going to try okay. and implement this meter or well, let me think um. <clears throat> because I guess I would say that that if this if this room is changing right, it's continually updating. It's gonna it's gonna be updating in response to some bug, or some some inefficiency, or some some I don't know. Maybe it's an aesthetic thing. Sure. Uh, UIs or user interfaces change all the time for various reasons, uh, and essentially the room takes kind of the yeah you're right goes sort of more towards this digital version where you're iterating over and over again. Um, maybe you have maybe you have this like change log off to the side like these user interfaces do all the time. Um, right. But I I don't know if it really has a huge impact on someone's life. What's different from time to time because. Well, maybe it would, to the extent that if well, it's reacting real time to your needs, but right. Uh, but that should be sort of you knowing what's going on, or you kind of understanding why someone's doing this. I don't know. Should that be relatively intuitive anyway? That doesn't need to be so. pointed out. Well, I mean, that was my question. Yeah. I even wrote it here, and. It, do we need help knowing what's new and you know yeah. why does it matter? Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean maybe maybe it's useful to have a change log, but and the example the example I wanted to sorry to interrupt. No, go for it. The example I wanted to give was, and I think the reason that I felt this was pertinent, mm -hmm. anecdotally at least, 
as coming back to Champaign after Champaign-Urbana after a year and a half, two years away, which really isn't that long of a time to be away from a place and return to it. Right. Um, there's all these different things that, these are all these things that changed from the last time I was mm-hmm, here. Mm-hmm. Granted, I was here for six years yep. at first, and lots of things changed over the period of that time, yeah. um, physically at least. Yep. And so there's all these things that have changed, and I honestly just find it exciting to go around and see what has changed and what the updates that occurred were. Um, <laughs> In a lot of cases, I would be really interested in knowing why those changes happened, mm-hmm. um, All right. which is something, which is some piece of information that I don't necessarily have access to. Right. And, you know, why is there now a Portillo's and a Giordano's down here? I mean, that's great. I love Portillo's and Giordano's, but you know, it's right. interesting. Right. And you know, there's there's even more quote unquote Asian food restaurants on Green Street than there was before. No way. There was yeah. a lot before. Yeah, there's even more now, which you know, isn't a bad thing. There's they're pretty like it's di- and it's not like it's saturated because the options are incredibly diverse. Yeah. Honestly. Yeah. Um, even even still within that. Yeah. So being able to understand why those changes happened, I think, would be the most critical thing. Okay. More so than just the mere factor of it. Okay. No, I you kind of prove me wrong there i think maybe you're right maybe it would be useful to have a change log maybe it's but, maybe it's useful to people who have you know maybe i guess maybe the question better question is at what point or how long since the change has occurred at what point do you feel uncomfortable and or maybe not uncomfortable but at least excited excited or uncomfortable it whatever just, it was just exciting right at what point is there enough of a change that you want to look at change log versus at what point or what point is it not a significant enough change right like you were talking about day to day you don't or living there for six years it's kind of the steady change that yeah you kind of see it but you don't really think too much about it unless one of your favorite restaurants closes right but if you're gone for two years or even a year and you come back i guess maybe then at that point it does you you've missed enough that you want to know what happened right but to instigate here let's say that we enter into a future in which that change can happen even faster the time in which you are away from a place in which you notice that becoming mm-hmm. shortens okay as as the rate of change increases and i note something here uh that sort of starts to get at this idea about t- about the idea of timelessness and how the idea of timelessness just becomes compressed, right? Mm-hmm. And so what is timeless for one person? Uh, okay, so what did I write? I don't know exactly. Okay. Perhaps, the, perhaps though, this introduces a cycle of obsolescence already occurring in architecture, but at, just at a slower rate. Um, this asks us to, to evaluate what we see as being timeless for most people, and then if it's going to change, should that happen rapidly or subtly? I don't know exactly what what is true or timeless for one per- person can be changed or augmented faster, and what's true or timeless for a whole society has become more. I don't know. I don't remember exactly where these ideas are going. But basically, what I'm getting at is things which change at a slower rate 
you know, which are regular buildings yep. that don't have sort of this interactive component to them, or maybe just have an interactive component acting upon them. Mm-hmm. You know, the rate of change of what they, uh, which they experience, may be slower than, you know, like a farmer's market on a, like a parking right. lot that hosts a farmer's market on a right. Saturday, where the rate of change is increased. Right. Um, and so obviously we see, does the does the timelessness of existing buildings become less as as they're introduced to a higher rate of change and does our understanding of what is timeless change as well I guess hmm. and is it just pointless in the first place hmm. I mean at all I mean I guess you're talking about timeless in terms of you know like some of these landmark or iconic buildings yeah yeah I don't know that's... I think um yeah, that's a good question. Maybe there's still going to be these iconic buildings and then everything around them just changes quickly, like a pop-up shop. Yeah. Um, but, I mean, even things within them can change, but this like, you have to think about this idea of preservation. What should be preserved? What doesn't need to be preserved? What can be acted upon and manipulated with? Mm-hmm. Yeah, maybe, maybe, that's where, maybe that's where it gets kind of important to understand what's actually important in terms of preservation and not preservation. What do you value? Yeah, I mean, I think some of these things that, you know, as we went through that fairy tales competition or any of these kinetic sort of architectural or quickly changing architectural things, I think it's always important to look through and understand what should be able to change rapidly and what shouldn't be able to change rapidly. Yeah. Um, and maybe maybe part of that psychological, knowing what the human psyche can, can deal with in terms of what or what the human psyche can under can can process as changing quickly versus what they what it can't process as changing quickly uh, and on the same level as that uh we talked a lot about how you have things you have certain heirlooms and artifacts of your family your history your memory um that you probably don't want to change you want these things to be preserved in much the same way all the architects want buildings to be preserved mm-hmm. or people want buildings to be, to be preserved for for nostalgic reasons more than anything right um so then then at what point is nostalgia enough to preserve a building and what point does it need to be actually a useful little building useful to someone as a building beyond nostalgia or a space or an experience um or maybe maybe we start to differentiate between buildings and experiences or buildings and spaces uh buildings are much more static but you kind of sort of separate the shell core and shell or the shell of a building from the the space inside even more right yeah. is that what starts to happen like the the physical shell of the building is is, is this enough, yeah, timeless thing the memory and this nostalgia and then yeah and then everything that's inside the shell it's kind of like this ultimate modernist blank box everything inside of there is completely flexible and not at all timeless and Hmm. I like it. Right, constantly updating to the situation. I mean, that's already already kind of a thing with retail, right? These Definitely. Pop up shops and uh, these smaller smaller rent shops. I don't know how much it's a thing, but I mean, I've certainly read about it a lot, and it's certainly been theorized as, or it's certainly said to be a thing in a lot of these articles that, you know, like to celebrate buzz buzzwordy type things. You know. I mean, def- definitely brick and mortar brick and mortar restaurant storefront phases like those change every six months yeah um you know 
it's possible, you know, that rate of change could even be sped up without being adverse to the the business itself, right? Mm-hmm. It, it could benefit the business itself. This is constantly evolving branding exercise, really. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Yeah. Uh, and that that's only I'm only through page 11 on my notes but <laughs> I don't know how long we've been going alright uh, uh, 20 28 minutes oh gosh alright uh, do you have any do you have anything else that you really wanted to talk about uh, do you have things I mean I, I have I something have... that comes from later in the chapter if you have something from before that, that you want to talk about go for it so Kelly's okay so we're talking he, he gets into this stuff about discomfort um he says a world without discomfort is just a utopia. Um, it's boring. It's stagnant. There's no problems. There's nothing to really draw from that makes it relatable to fallible humans, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so, and so he goes from that. He um, says dystopias are more entertaining, easier to envision their faults. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it is just. He, he thinks. He thinks like a. easier to relate to constantly changing environment leads to a world without discomfort and discomfort is a utopia no i I don't think he said that constantly changing world i think he said we're in a constantly changing world as a product of not living in a utopia oh yeah maybe i all right because you're saying if you're in a utopia it's static there's no change because there doesn't need to be change but since we're not in a utopia things are constantly changing which which makes a lot of sense um, you know, there's always something to improve, and then once we improve something, we create a new problem. Um, but we're incrementally better than we were before. Uh, this, right, yeah, was right. The point he was so making. that's his protopia. Yeah. Um, is this, uh, he talks about this becoming as a protopia's constant, right. constant evolution toward in progress. Right. Uh, right. Sort of where the pro. Yeah. One. It's yeah, kind of like a two steps forward one steps back kind of thing right is how it's, is how it's um, talked about i kind of wanted to, to compare that to alvin tolfler's practopia from one of the books i don't know which one um which is also this the same i it was more socially based i think than uh digitally based that kelly sort of gets at mm-hmm. um it was it was right It basically just leads to progress and civilization and continual small net benefits. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Let me see if there's anything else. Oh, one thing that I... The internet is this idea of becoming. I wanted to say something about this. Okay. It was something that was developed by a large group of people and... While a single, while a singular vision for how we move in the future will always be flawed, which is sort of, I guess, what the modernists, um, the 1940s, 50s modernists, you know, were developing in terms of their utopias. Yeah. I think as we see companies diversifying more and more, the trend is obvious that in order to tackle extremely complex progress problems of becoming uh, today, in the future, we can't lose. Uh, site that this shouldn't just come from a single source but rag, rather becoming or protopia pro, protopia is a completely collective effort um it's not something that a single person single entity can really deal with where the internet is so good now 
because it's developed by millions of people. He talks uh-huh. about, he gets into these ideas of collective efforts and sort of how that has shaped the internet and other things. But like the internet started out as this, uh, started out being ran by the National Science Foundation. Uh-huh. They rejected monetization. Yeah. Now I find it's so fascinating that the internet is being this tool in which monetization is sort of being democratized across people through like Bitcoin and yeah. blockchain stuff. Yeah, no, that's true. I think I thought that was kind of ironic. Um, no, that's a good point. No, I, 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 that was one reason why I couldn't really tell exactly where he was going with this chapter uh, for becoming, because he spent so long talking about the internet, and to a certain extent, it's an example of this idea of becoming but he also it's kind of like a building block of his idea of becoming and it's really strange that it's it's sort of both an example and a foundational piece of his idea and i was it was yeah. the kind of circular nature of that really sort of confused me for a little while um i mean i think in the end i think it's this practopia idea that really is the the basis for this chapter this sort of this protopia idea of, of slowly incrementally improving um, but I think it, it's so it's just so deeply rooted, rooted in this idea of digitaliz- digitalization and internetalization if I can make up that word um, <laughs> that was really strange because he really sort of talked about this idea of becoming as um, you know becoming everyone becoming part of this problem democratization democratization of ideas of content of, I guess, to a certain extent, the internet is very deeply rooted in this continual update by the many, right? This decentralized, continual update process. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, it's really sort of built by it, and then is sort of a cyclical process allowed more of it. Right. Um, but I think at the end, uh, what, I was, what I got pretty interested in was this thing that he kept talking about of of not just you know becoming as a term to use but just this whole world as the idea of becoming and i think it really it's what it came down to is this whole world incrementally improving and then becoming smart in a way right so like uh people getting more access to information on the internet creating more content and then getting even more information right it's this kind of cyclical improvement that way um, but then also like he brought up this idea of googling everything or everything being googleable googleable um right so yeah. like everything being on the internet everything being a part of the internet whether it's your uh computer mouse or your refrigerator or your coffee maker um or your pet or your pet or some some point in time of your youtube video or um some page on your book whatever just everything becoming googleable i mean i think so that, that sorry yeah i don't know I, I think it started out as this idea of protopia becoming and it ended up with this idea of everything is just becoming smarter and that maybe is his idealization of becoming um but I think I think that has a huge bearing on how we're going to experience the world if that's kind of how things are going to end up. Yeah, so that brings up an interesting thought for me, and in that he talks about becoming and uses the the allegory of the internet and the web to talk about it. 
Yeah. And what we know about the internet is that it started small, and then over time, the content produced on the internet was developed by more and more people showing themselves, right? Yeah. Sort of expressing themselves in a particular way, blogs, YouTube, Facebook, you know, whatever it is, that people, people are putting their personalities, preferences and things on the internet. Um, and so now I find that interesting to think that our next use for the internet is sort of the opposite of that. We're using the internet to tell us about ourselves. Yeah, it's sort of, yeah, no, it's a, you're right. Um, and I don't really know if that thought is going anywhere. No, but... I, I, yeah. Well, it's one of those things, right? It's one of those things that's, um, I had an example in my head just now. Well, it, it seems like it's one of those things where we kind of intuitively knew about it, right? Um, you know, the philosophers of the past were sort of like building up this knowledge of, of humanity, of, of what humans are, of what thinking is, of what life is, right? Um, okay. They're building up this theory of everything, right? Slowly through their writings. Uh, and then and then the industrial kind of wave hits and we sort of, hey, we're kind of like God. We can, you know, scientifically prove everything. Why do we need this? Why do we need to think about it? Why don't we just, you know, go out and look for it? And I think uh, to a certain extent, it's it kind of mirrors that where it's like, Hey, why don't we, we kind of knew this about ourselves, but now we're going to go out and find information and sort of in a way, forget about it in ourselves and then realize that we sort of lost ourselves and we're augmenting the old ways to, I don't know if that makes sense, but you know, augment what we knew before to say what we know now with like new technology. Right. Right, it's like using information to sort of confirm our old, confirm what we knew in the past. Yeah. Um, well, it's... He talks, I think he gets into the prosumer a little bit, which are these people that actively post content on the internet. Yeah. Are we just becoming con consumers again if we allow it to... No, Just describe it, us. Everyone's becoming a prosumer and a consumer to a certain extent. Everyone, to a certain extent, is producing content and consuming content. I don't know. Do you're always going to be consuming something that someone else produces, unless you can literally produce everything for yourself, right? Right. So I don't know if we necessarily need to make the distinction, right? I I I, I really like the point that. Um, the internet's almost turning back on itself and like in, we inform the internet and then the internet comes back and informs us but I think it's never going to be only one direction it's always going to be okay. a sort of multi-directional right I'm helping you, you help me um, otherwise then the, as soon as that stops it becomes stale right And, and right and that, I guess that, that was my point like a lot of these things we talk about in the the way I've thought about sort of the future of physical environments as it relates to digital environments is that um, the digital environment reads us and responds to us, and we don't have to really instigate that. It just sort of does it. Mm -hmm. right? But we also have to provide it with good detail or good data. and um... Well, it needs additional data, right? 
Well, we have to provide it with good data off the start so that it can learn itself, and then we have to be able to teach it how to learn. Um, that's okay. That's true, but is that necessary? And it's also content that we're creating, right? We we are creating the content that it is reading, and it is spitting right. it back out at us. But I guess my question is whether or not that's only for our use, or if it's useful. I guess I guess it's possible that the information about us could be aggregated and average and everything and used uh, for the collective or whatever. Um, so I guess in a way that still becomes useful for other people, even the, even the extremely passive stuff. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it becomes a it could become sort of an average, and you can slice it and dice it however you wanted to. What's the average for someone with my age and my height and um, the living situation that I'm in? I don't know, something like that. Yeah. Did you have anything else that you wanted to get at in this? Um. Not really. I think that was the most interesting thing to me was this, this everything becoming smart because it, it, it cuts back also to that conversation we had in the past about, about being, you know, the lifestyle designer through AI, right? And I think that's, if everything becomes smart, everything is constantly becoming, that's your opportunity to jump in and start to curate lives or not lives, but, you know, help someone sort of design their life the way they want it and sort of not manipulate the data, but, but sort of filter the data and, and I I guess manipulate it maybe is the right word to, to the, to get the results that you want or to, to work around. I mean, it is the right word because ultimately having this much access to information about someone or yourself, it allows for a really heavy hand about how you experience something. Mm-hmm. Um, and we have to be aware that that heavy hand is going to be there um, and use it well. Mm-hmm. Like Being able to do something with such accuracy, it's, it's a power. A great power comes yeah. great responsibility. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. I, don't, I thought the chapter was pretty good. I, I think the whole book is pretty good. Um, and I'm excited for some of the, a couple of later chapters, but I didn't think it was too vague. I don't... It, it seemed like a good setup chapter for the rest of the book. You know, it really sort of sets up these ideas of constantly updating, constantly changing, constantly becoming something new. Constantly be, it's like constantly, A, you're constantly becoming something new, but you're also constantly becoming a better version of yourself in a way. A different but better, hopefully, version of yourself. I think, I think the biggest thing about this is that it's, it kind of leaves you wanting, I guess. It, it sets up like this grand narrative at the end about like this great, really utopian life that, that can happen like this is the greatest time to be uh working in technology and designing things and the history of the world and blah 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 right. blah um doesn't really get into any of the details it just sort of has talked about the internet and then yeah. what might come out of that is maybe maybe the rest of the book maybe that's what well i think to a certain extent the point is not to get into the details because the details are what you can't predict i think his thesis yeah. is that he can predict these broader trends but completely not predict how they're executed well maybe details in the right word but fields i mm-hmm. guess or like 
Because, I mean, in the later parts of the book, he describes possible scenarios. Yeah. Well, I think that's also up to us to figure out, as, as designers, to figure out possible scenarios for it. Yeah. Right? And maybe that's what we're doing. Maybe. I mean, just, yeah. Yeah. I mean... Uh, hopefully that's kind of what comes out of the next you know this was sort of the introductory setup yeah. chapter it's sort of the introductory setup podcast episode for this series and hopefully as we get into it we start to investigate these things a little more and, and, and produce maybe not actionable solutions but maybe get closer to scenarios in which these trends might or might not be applied uh, yeah based on our experiences and where we see the world going. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, this is a fun read, nonetheless, going yeah. through it again. Yeah. And we'll... All right. So I think... Uh, wrap it up here. Yeah. Um, I, I, yeah. I mean, we'll continue this next time with what? What chapter is it? It's, uh, it's Becoming and then... Uh, when was the next Actifying's one? next, but I don't know if we were going to do that one. No, we're not. Flowing. Flowing is the next one. We'll do flowing. Alright, right, everyone. Uh, thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. See ya.